The British had pulled out, the, the Irish had taken over, we were a new state. And Irish Defence Forces personnel, Irish Air Corps pilots, technicians, people like myself, have lived and, and worked in this for a hundred years. Mm. It's more our facility now than it was the British. And we've committed more to it, we've contributed more to it. Our personnel have worked and lived and then have left here to go peacekeeping in the Congo, in Lebanon. People have died overseas doing that in Irish uniforms. People have died in service on this base. That's why this story is so important. There's a narrative there that has to be explored by historians, but more so by the people of Ireland. Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast, brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Force podcast. My name is Captain Richard Byrne, and in today's special episode, we're here in Casement Airdrome, Balladonnell, to celebrate 100 years of the Irish Air Corps. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by Corporal Michael Whelan, who has served 32 years in the Irish Air Corps and is an expert in its history. Corporal Whelan is curator of the Irish Air Corps Museum here in Balladonnell, a soldier, a poet, a historian, and an author. Mick, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much, Roar, and welcome to Baldonnell. So today you're going to bring us through 100 years of history of the Irish Air Corps. First of all, do you want to give us a bit of background on yourself and what got you into history, and specifically history of the Irish Air Corps? Okay, so um, basically I came home from Kosovo in 2001 after spending six months out there peacekeeping. Um, I was interested in history. I just started learning. I, lo- I love stories and I love drama and the human, the human story, like, you know. So there was people here at the time, mentors, they're all passed away or they've retired at this stage who taught me lots. I went off and did a degree at Night Minute and five and a half, six years later I had a master's. It all stemmed from that. You know? uh, and a master's in history, is it? Master of modern history, yeah. Oh, excellent, excellent. So talk us about your day-to-day routine or day-to-day life here in the, in, in the camp. Okay, so um, I'm the curator, as you say, of the Irish Air Corps Museum in case I'm there, John Baldonnel here. And my day-to-day role is looking after the... We have a major collection of artefacts and aircraft in the museum, so I look after that day-to-day. I also collect oral histories. I look after the archiving of documents and transferal of those documents and artefacts into the military archives of Ireland. So, so have you been given tours all along, or when did you start the tours here in the base? Uh, almost immediately, around 2001, I started doing the tours, and they built up over time, and also... At one stage, it would have been people who were interested in history. You might have got the school tours. Then it's progressed on to people coming from abroad, uh, uh, people who are in- interested in aviation. You got historians, people from found literature, family history. I tried to focus on the historical question, trying to answer the, the historical question for people who want to know, you know, uh, for books and for documentaries. So I've done a lot of documentaries and stuff like that, you know. So. so when we arrived today, we came into the main gate. That's where we're standing here now. We met you. We're lucky enough today, you're going to bring us through one of these tours that you yep. do regularly. So where are we after first? We're at the main gate now. We're going to walk over to the old main gate, which is behind the clothing stores and beside the gym. Perfect. So we'll head down now. Okay, so we'll go over there now. Perfect. Okay, so uh, we're just approaching the original main gate of the camp. So the importance of this gate is... Um, this is the gate that the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Edmund Fitzalan, and General Sir Neville McCready, who was officer commanding Crown Forces in Ireland, uh, visited on the 6th of December 1921. The 6th of December 1921 is very important in Irish history because that's the day that the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed in London. And it was a turning point, if you like, in Irish affairs. Uh, Baldonnell, at that time, was the headquarters base of the Royal Air Force in Ireland. So what was the significance of that visit? Was that the start of the, uh, the, the recce for the Irish takeover? Or? 
Well, that's a question I always ask myself. What was he, what was going through their minds as they walked up where we're standing here past the Guard of Honour with the with the with the British flag mounted on the flagpole? Um, did they know that the treaty was being signed that morning? Because in the correspondence and the letters that were written afterwards, he actually says, and I have the letter, he's writing to the commander of the RAF base here, thanking him for the visit, describing the weather, and saying, I'll be back. So I suppose with the treaty being signed that day, he never came actually came back in that gate, did he? No, he didn't. And the reason for that is the Irish forces took over this base uh, in 20, 1922. Like the treaty was signed in December 1921 in London, but I had to come back and they had the treaty debates in Dublin. And then in January, it was basically, uh, it was signed again by the Irish, okay? Mm-hmm. That led to the pull-out of British force, Crown force from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, the first one of those would have been Dublin Castle, which was celebrated, uh, commemorated recently. It's the same thing here. So, and t- so they pulled out, or they had to pull out because the Irish were going to take over this base so he never got the chance to come back even though he had planned to do that or to General McCready who was the commander of the Crown Forces. Everything changed in that short period of, the time, of time. So when the Irish, when the Irish military was being formed there was the, the General Headquarters in, was in Beggars, Beggars Bush Barracks. On the 23rd of March 1922 at a meeting of the Irish government officers of the General Staff of the Irish military and military aviation department in General Headquarters Beggars Bush Barracks that meeting was to establish the Irish Air Council. So Commandant General William McSweeney and Colonel Commandant Charlie Russell were appointed directors of the military and civil aviation departments in the Irish Air Service on that day. So both of these officers had been instrumental in the purchase of the Martinside Toy Bay Mark II aeroplane, which was purchased to assist the escape of Michael Collins from London should the treaty talks collapse during that period. This was the first aircraft owned by the Irish people and the Irish Air Service and was delivered to Baldonlan on June the 16th, 1922, which was later named the big after the big fella, it was named after Michael Collins. So there was a lot of moving parts. So that, that from that meeting, they bought the uh, Martin style Type A. So what kind of aircraft was that? So it was, a, it was a biplane, but it wasn't purchased after the treaty, it was purchased during the treaty. So Michael Collins and the penitentiaries were in London negotiating with the British government on the terms of the treaty. At times, it looked like it was going to collapse. So the IRA at the time basically said, we'll, we, need a, we need an escape plan to get Michael Collins out of London because there was, a, there was a massive bounty. I think it was £10,000 on his head. The treaty was signed subsequently. Mm. So that aircraft was, was shipped back to Ireland and arrived in the gate here in June the 16th on the back of a lorry. So the aircraft was, was in England ready to bring Collins home in case there was collapse? Yeah, so, so initial plan was to attack basically, uh, attack maybe military uh, installations on the mainland of the UK. The plan changed quickly to get him out. So they would have to go, Russell and McSweeney, these two guys who became directors on military and civil aviation, they basically had to go up and look at the aircraft, uh, find something wrong with it or maybe break something on it and say we can't take it today because uh, it's not it's not in full operating order you know because they had to drag out the whole thing once it's flying direct for their aircraft you had to take it you know then you had to fly it home or get rid of it somewhere else so they were but you needed it on an airfield to get Collins out in, 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 in England in England in the UK. Yeah. so they were kind of dicking up the aircraft taking little bits off to, yeah, to yeah. hold the aircraft there yeah for fear they need to get, get Collins yeah. out. They were always finding either a, a material snag or something wrong with the documents to make that process longer mm. so the treaty talks could finish, you know? And that's very important because that aircraft became the first aircraft owned by the Irish people, the provisional Irish government, and also 
the first aircraft in the service of the Irish Air Corps or the Irish Air Service. So then after the treaty was signed, Collins was safe, it was brought back here to Ireland. Yeah. I'd say it got a good welcome, obviously it was named the big fella after Collins himself. Well, yeah, named the big fella on one side of the cowling and Dublin City on the other side. Okay. okay, so it was the first aircraft, but other aircraft had been arriving in that period, like the Bristol Fighters and the Avro 504K. So, continuing on with the, with the big fellas, so the, the actual the guys behind procuring that and keeping it in England and then bringing it home, what, what was the significance of them two? Okay, so those two were XRAF World War I pilots, and yeah. they came back to Ireland and joined the IRA and fought against the Crown Forces in Ireland. They came to notice because they could fire machine guns, they were in the IRA. Um, and they would have been previously trained by the RAF yes. and would have combat experience? They would have. Well, not so, so much as other people, but uh, they still could fly aircraft and see in action. But that's the thing about the Irish Defence Forces or the Irish military at that time. Uh, there was lots and lots and lots of people who had fought in the First World War, were brought back to Ireland and helped establish the Irish military. So it, there's a figure of 55,000 troops in the Free State Army at the end of the Civil War. You can read that in some of the books. Mm -hmm. uh, Roughly 25 to 30,000 of those had some kind of military experience, uh, whether in the British Army, the Americans, New Zealanders, even from French foreign legions. We even had two Germans. They founded the... Uh, yeah, yeah, school music. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there was, there was a huge amount of yeah. combat experience. Yeah. So these two guys, Russell and Mr. are very important because they were the founder members of Irish military and civil aviation. So that meeting uh, with Russell and McSweeney, that happened up in Beggar's Bush up in Dublin. It did. So then obviously they needed to get a location to set up their, uh, set up their training base and set up, uh, set up their air corps, essentially. That's right, that's correct. So we're, we're approaching then a World War I hangar here, uh, which was built in 1917 when the base was constructed. And this is a bombing tower for ground attack, train crews to, to ground attack with bombs and machine guns. So it's a good example to stand under. So Bell Donald itself was taken over by the National Army troops on the 3rd of May 1922. So that was the military takeover. And on the 12th of May, just about a week later, you had the Civil uh, Aviation Department takeover. So then you had military and civil aviation on, on location here on the base, which the directors of those was. Mil military was, was McSweeney and civil was Russell. The two guys had been involved in the push of the big fella, came back from the war to do that, and now set up those two departments promoted as directors of it and now they are taking over where you are going to operate from okay so Baldonnell at that time had been the headquarters of the Royal Air Force in Ireland as I said and it was one of four training depot stations so TDSs okay so they were just four of them in the greater Dublin area so you had Baldonnell mm -hmm. the headquarters of the RDF number 23 you had Talla which is now gone it's where B&Q is facing the old Jacobs factory on the, on, you know, on the, on the yeah, Belgrade yeah, Road yeah. that was number 25 TDS and you also had Gormanston. Yeah, yeah, it's still, it's still a camp. And then right. the fourth one was Collinstown, which is Dublin Airport today. Go away. Okay, they were the fourth and they were the fourth in the greater Dublin area. Uh, elaborate a little bit, during the 20th century, there was about 55 airfields and air bases, so they were basically landing fields, but there was only four in the south of Ireland, if you like, what we have today, uh, were built like this one here in Baldonnell. They were the main TDSs. You can imagine, you're looking around here, you can see this hangar here, there's four hangars in a row, there's all this kind of modern material built environment behind us. But we're standing in the footprints of the, first, the footsteps here of the first people that arrived here in 1917 to build this. And then in 1922, when the Irish military took over to use this as their operating base. 
So it's it's a very important uh, line of history. So so where we're standing was kind of the birth of civil aviation and military aviation in Ireland. Yes, and there's lots more to that story. We're going to elaborate on that a little bit later on when we go into the museum. Yeah. Uh, and when you mentioned this World War One hangar that we're facing here, is that this very similar structure? Obviously, it's been modernised, but is it? Well, there's about 50% of this camp still dates from the First World War. Basically, this is a World War I military base, okay, taken up with the Irish. We're standing under this tower here. You can see it's, it's on the corner of a World War I hangar. The roof and the doors have been modernised, or there's a cladding over that. But that brickwork, that fabric tells you a story, okay? This hangar was built, this base was built as a temporary facility for the duration of the war. The idea was it would be all taken down once the war was over. But you think about it, to the backdrop of the First World War, you had Irish independence, the fight for independence. Mm. The state, the British had pulled out, the, the Irish had taken over, we were a new state. That, that, these hangars, this facility was still here. It's still here 105 years later, as a temporary facility. Mm. Do, do you know what I mean? Everything was supposed to be cleared <laughs> off, and yeah, it's yeah. still here. And Irish Defence Forces personnel, Irish Air Corps pilots, technicians, people like myself, have lived and, and worked in this for a hundred years. Mm. It's more our facility now than it was the British. You yeah, know, we've, we've, had we, we've owned it for longer and we've committed more to it, we've contributed more to it. Our personnel have worked and lived and done everything here. Our personnel have left here to go peacekeeping in the Congo, in Lebanon. People have died overseas doing that in Irish uniforms. People have died in service on this base. That's why this story is so important. There's a narrative there that has to be explored by historians, but more so by the people of Ireland. So when Max Sweeney and Russell came out here, they would have been starting from scratch. Can you talk me through, like, they would have, they would have a huge, uh, huge amount of work in front of them? Well, they did. They had a great lot, lot of work in front of them to, to build, to establish and build up the Air Corps or the Irish Air Service at the time. But they had help, like, the first 12 pilots here were all ex-RAF, so they would have had that kind of same indoctrination, the same training and knew what to do, I suppose. So did, I, I know, I know I've heard of, definitely heard of one of them. Is it Major James Fitzmaurice? Yes, yeah, so Definitely would have heard of him, and he had previous combat experience. Well, can you chat to me about him? Well, Fitzmaurice has a long... A uh, very important story uh, in Irish military aviation. He's kind of more or less forgotten about in a, in a lot of ways, but he's very important to the story of the Irish Air Corps. So he was commanding officer of here in 19, of Baldonnell of the Irish Air Service, Irish Air Corps, sorry, in 1928. So I'll just bring you over to this practice, this monument on the ground here. So he's famous for the Bremen flight. So we're standing here at the takeoff point of the Bremen flight, which occurred on the 12th of April 1928. So, so this is right beside our World War One hangar, yeah. just right beside us. Yeah. It's, it's the same tower. Yeah. That, that yeah. You got so from. you're trying to imagine like, the buildings behind us weren't there at the time. We're, we're, this is all a kind of a dirt road, and there was, there was a grass runway leading out between the two hangars here. So we have the museum hangar on the right, the World War One hangar, and the heli hangar on the left. And this runway ran, it was a grass runway all the way out to where you see that taxiway heading out to the right of the air traffic control then, tower. Out to, the, out to the Dublin Mountains. Yeah, so that's the Slade Valley there in front of us, just right. above Sagart. On the 12th of April 1928, about five past five in the morning, maybe about five or six o'clock in the morning, uh, the Bremen was sitting here facing those hills between the two hangars. So you had a crew of three, two Germans and an Irishman. Captain uh, Herman Cowell and uh, Baron von Heunfeld, who was an, aristoc an aristocrat, and you had the Irishman, uh, Major James Fitzmaurice, who was OC of the aircraft at the time. They climbed into the aircraft and they took off in that direction and taxied out towards the Slade Valley. They turned right and went across the, the centre of Ireland, cut it in half basically and headed towards New York. That was the first east to west non-stop transatlantic flight, successful one, 
1928. And it put Ireland on the romantic mantle of aviation, if you like, at the time. And so the significance of that then, so that was, that was the first flight, east to west, first flight. Yeah. So the, the, the first successful conquering of the Atlantic was, on, uh, was in June 1919. And it was two RAF pilots in the Vickers Vimy uh, bomber aircraft. They flew from America to Ireland and uh, it took them about uh, 19 and a half hours. They were flying so fast they nearly missed Ireland and just skidded into a bog down a cliff in Galway. <laughs> the tail, the wind, they had a tailwind pushing them all the way. Between 1919 uh, and 1920, there was lots of attempts to conquer it in reverse and lots of people were lost. And there was a number of attempts from here. These were successful. Their problem was getting into New York in, in, a, in, a, in a headwind pushing them off course. And they took 36 and a half hours, a day and a half, flying without any navigation like we'd have today. Navigating by what stars? Yeah, stars going above the clouds, looking at the stars coming down, looking at the wind, the spray coming off the waves. Always trying to turn left into the wind because we're being blown off course. Oh, winds, yeah. And he eventually had to do a, a landing on a Greenlee Island in Newfoundland, uh, thinking they, were, they had problems, fuel and oil uh, loss. When they landed, they realised that they'd flown twice the distance and still had enough fuel to get to New York. But when they tried to get the aircraft off this frozen lake, the undercarriage under broke. That put paid to the finishing the flight, but they still conquered the Atlantic. They hit the American continent, you know? And, and just for, for, for the- And this is where they took off, where we're standing. For where we're exactly standing. Yeah. And you have, a, you have a plaque here, the yeah. Bremen 1928 here to commemorate that. Yeah. And for, for the kind of uninitiated, kind of talks about that aircraft itself. Um, so the Bremen, the, do you see the name Bremen there? Mm -hmm. So the Bremen was the name of the aircraft and it was the people in the, Bremen, the city of Bremen in Germany, uh, the businessmen and, and all those type of people, they funded this uh, flight. And Bart, Baron von Heunfeld, who wasn't a pilot, he was like the aristocrat on the aircraft. He had the monocle, he's really a man of his time. Uh, Cole was a World War I pilot and Fitzmaurice was a World War I pilot. So 10 years before this event, they were enemies. It's crazy, you know? We yeah, weren't yeah. even independent at that time. They're enemies. 10 years before in the war. Now their friends going to conquer the Atlantic. So it's great um, cooperation there. But uh, so the Bremen, the city of Bremen funded this flight and von Heunfeld, who was said, was a friend of those people. It was kind of a secret operation. They came here, they realized that Fitzmaurice had already attempted to do this flight about three months earlier in a different aircraft. He'd got the experience. So he, he basically was picked for it. He went on to it anyway. So the two pilots, very tired, manky dirty, noisy all the time, language barriers, flying to, over to New York, and you had an aristocrat making the sandwiches and shoving it into their mouths. <laughs> you had to feel useful somehow. <laughs> that story itself is an, is an unbelievable story, but it's, it's very little known about it, I'd say, here in Ireland. So how, how was Fitzmaurice treated then when he came home, or how was he celebrated over in, in America? Well, he was, he was lauded very well in America. They got a ticket tape parade down Central Avenue. It cost an awful lot of money even to clean up that ticket tape parade afterwards. Um, but there's lots of unknown stories, or very little known stories, to do with Baldonnel and the airdrome here. For instance, uh, we have the first Aer Lingus aircraft take off from Baldonnel in 1926. And if you'd like to go and learn more about that, we can bring it to that location. Yeah, now. let's go. So Mick, you brought me out here onto the tarmac and we're standing right beside the Garda helicopter. Can you give me the significance of this area here? So the Garda helicopter belongs to the Garda Air Support Unit and it's parked right next to the Garda Air Support Unit headquarters, which was the location of the original passenger terminal for civil aviation, Aer Lingus. So just to go back, in 1919, the RAF wanted to use Baldonnel as an airport, a civil airport. Mm -hmm. 
didn't do much business that way. But in 1922, when Russell came out here as Director mm -hmm. of Civil Aviation, the plan was that this would be an airport for Dublin and an airport for Ireland. So again, you have your military civilian yeah, side military by side. military civil aviation, okay. So if you can go forward a couple of decades to 1930, Iona Airways started off here. And then in 1936, Aer Lingus started its operation from here using the same location, the passenger terminal. Uh, so they flew aircraft back and forward to the UK all the way up to 1939, 1940, uh, when they moved to Town, RDF Town, which is now Dublin Airport. So the first, one of the first Aer Lingus flights would have left from here? It did, yeah. There's an aircraft known as the Uller. It's still flying, it's a historical aircraft. It was a DH Dragon, and that was the type of aircraft you were flying back and forward. Excellent. And, uh, and I know people in mind with the thing in a passenger terminal. This is it was quite a small building at the time. I said, it's nothing like you see in airports. Uh, no, 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 it was very basic. You can think there's only a certain type of people or amount of people could, have fly, could afford to fly. So uh, I wasn't uh, very busy, I'd say, at the time. I, you know? I can imagine. And I, so we're standing on tower here there. Back then, was this, was this all grass? Uh, it was mostly grass, yeah. You've got two modern runways are out behind the tower there. There's an air traffic control there in front of you. The two modern runways are out there, concrete runways. But the runways didn't come until the mid part of the century. It was mostly grass runways and taxiways. And you mentioned they moved out to Collintown. When, when was that? 1939-1940, just moving into the World War II period. So that brings us nearly into the emergency. Yes, and if you will call to the museum now in the next stop, we can show you some of the material down there and some of the stories. Yeah, perfect, we'll stroll over there, so excellent. So Mick, you brought us into your uh, humble abode here. Uh, it's, the, it's the Aircrew Museum. Just for the listeners at home, it's an absolute massive hangar full of different bits of artifacts. Um, as you mentioned, you said the original roof, the original sides, the whole lot. So do you want to talk just a little bit about the uh, museum here? Okay, so as you mentioned there, it's a, it's a World War I hangar. We're standing in a World War I hangar. Uh, in the collection we here, we have about a dozen vintage aircraft. We've got engines, uniforms, documents, photographs, weapons. We've also projects on the go, like the oral history program and an archival program collecting documents and that. So you have a huge selection here. Yeah. But where we left the story the last time, we were just about to jump into the emergency. Do you want to take me a few of the bits around here? Okay, so we have emergency? some. We have lots of material here from the, from the emergency period. We've got, we're just passing here uh, a Maryland 66 engine, which would have been uh, an, an, an engine in the Spitfire aircraft from that period. We've got our engines too. And straight ahead of us, we've got an Avro Anson, Avro 19. They were the first aircraft with a monoplane design and a retractable the carriage that came in 1937. So they served up during the emergency period. Uh, and and they, were, they were coastal patrols? They did the coastal patrols, maritime patrols, similar to what they do today uh, yeah. with the cars. You know, so they were flying out over the Irish. Uh, and just for the listeners, well, you have a full, full aircraft there. It's, it's a full it's, aircraft, it's, yes. It's quite impressive. And engines, it's a huge collection yeah. Yeah. And it's quite, quite important. We've also got World War II wreckage from the belligerent aircraft with propellers and engines and wreckage from both sides, American, British and German, that came down in Irish territorial waters or on Irish uh, So they would have crashed, the a, a crashed on yeah. an island or off the, yeah, off the, yeah. off the yeah. coast? So the Irish, Irish Aviation Authority, the crash rescue service, would have recovered this stuff over the years and then we eventually got it. But they tell a story. They tell a, a very unique story, you know. So we've got engines taken out of sea and off the land, uh, superchargers, drop tanks, weapons, cameras, and the, and the stories behind them. And I know during the emergencies, we had kind of Hawker hurricanes that were even myself who was not involved in the aviation thing, that I would always know on them. They were kind of like the best fighters of the day. Was they were, true? yeah. So the Hawker hurricane is very important in the Battle of Britain and the RDF story during World War II. I think they actually shot down more uh, enemy aircraft. Now, so everybody knows the Spitfire aircraft, but yeah. the, Haw the Hawker hurricane was more successful and cool. very fast and, mm. and, uh, and uh, 
caused a lot of damage to the to the enemy forces. But, so but it was like the, the top range of the top day, of the range, and, yeah. and we had it as well as, we as, did, as yeah. the Brits having it. Okay, so one of them came down in a crash. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was due to enemy action, and the Air Corps recovered it and put it into service. Then we purchased Hawker Hurricanes from the RAF. But we also had Hawker Hectors, Hawker Hines, a fairly battle at Gloucester Gladiators, uh, Westland Lysanders, and all these aircraft flew in Irish territory, over Irish mm -hmm. territory, in the skies, defending air, airspace. This is the plan. And on those aircraft, there was a, a Black Panther, okay. or the Wildcat, emblazoned on the nose cone uh, to show that this is number one fighter squad. So that was kind of emblem of, uh, yeah, of yeah. the number one. And you can see one in a few minutes now on the Vampire. So Mick, as we're walking around the uh, museum here, it actually brings us nicely into the 1950s, into the jet era. And what I see here is a jet in front of me. Can you talk me through it? Okay, we'll just approach it here. This is the, the Havilland Vampire jet. It was an advanced jet trainer. It was purchased and delivered in 1956, which is the reason why we have the concrete runways. They had to, you know, Jack can't land on grass. So this is a very important uh, part of the exhibition and it tells a great story. So the jet age came to Ireland in 1956. We were the first to have jets in Ireland. And in 1961, five years into that service, we had the first and only emergency ejection from an Irish Air Corps aircraft. So when you say ejection, like say in the films, you pull the handle and, yeah. he, and he fires up into yeah, the air in the seat. Pops out seat and everything, yeah. And parachutes up and out. So they were flying over Cavan, and the instructor who was uh, Commandant Jerry O'Connor at the time, very famous in Air Corps history, and the cadet was Andy McPartland. So he was 18 or 19 years of age. They were flying over County Cavan and he had to go into a dive a spin okay. so that he could teach the student how to recover right. the aircraft. When he went into this tight spin, uh, they basically lost control of the aircraft. He couldn't recover the aircraft. So he told Andy McPartland to eject. So this is 30,000 feet, now they're spinning out yeah, of control. But they're coming down Earth. very fast. Like right. The ground's getting very close, very fast, nice, and in right. your face. So he basically said, you better get out. He ejected, bang, the canopy blows off. He pops out where you see. But as, after that happened, uh, the aircraft, he got some more control of the aircraft. I don't know whether it was because of the, the bolt, the jolt, or the air going over the canopy. He, he managed to recover the aircraft and fly it back to Baldonnell. So he's minus the canopy, minus his eyelids and chill veins so on his ears. He's flying this roof off, yeah. convertible, the whole way back to Baldonnell yeah. from Cavan. And saying his prayers probably. Right. Yeah. Right. He lands back in Baldonnell, parks the aircraft, goes down for coffee in the officer's mess. Not a bother, McPartin is coming down over Cavan. So this from is the a, cadet now that's yeah, been, yeah. yeah, from a modern state-of-the-art jet aircraft. Now, you have to remember, this is the space age, the jet age. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Russians have gone into space as Sputnik. Uh, Gary Powers has been shot down over uh, Moscow or yeah. Russia in a, in yeah, a U-2 yeah. spy plane. It's all over the news, you know. It's history kind of changing. He floats down. He sees a guy in the field with a donkey and a cart. So he's after Goes over to them. Blown out of one of yeah. the like a sophisticated jet, probably the best, yeah. most sophisticated jet at the time. Point, yeah. Down to a man in an ass and cart, yeah, 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 the yeah. most so rudimentary at the time. Like, imagine yeah. the juxtaposition of his yeah. uh, his <laughs> moment of his life at that stage. He goes over and he says, uh, "Can I get access to a farm or something?" Your man's looking like he's a Martian at the landing, <laughs> from, you know, in his spacesuit and his helmet, yeah. you know, with his rig on him. He brings him to a phone down the road, and there's a, there's a bit of a banter about who, who's going to pay for the phone call. Yeah, and how are they going to listen to the cavalry men talk? Yeah, so yeah. they say the accident was yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So he rings Bal Donnell and says, I think this is Cadet McPartland, I think Colin O'Connor is dead. And your man answers the phone in the message, and now he's not, he's beside me. <laughs> so eventually they managed to extract uh, young McPartland and brought him back to Bonnell, but there's a very brilliant, unique photograph of him 
in his flying suit with his straps on him and a big gleaming smile on his face standing beside the Commandant who told him to eject <laughs> and the OC of the air corps in the mess and he's got a big lovely smile on it and the Commandant has a rice, a rice smirk on his face you know but it's just one of those moments that, that brings this, this, this history to life yeah, you know? that's, a, that's an incredible yeah. story and that's it, the one and only time to have so we're, we're in the 50s we're in the jet era um, and it's an unbelievable story there about the, the vampire and the ejection but what I've noticed throughout particularly where we are at the moment is I haven't seen any helicopters so wh when did they come into the story? The helicopters came in in 1963 uh, and our next stop on the tour is the Air Corps Apprentice Hangar where we actually have the first ever helicopter the Air Corps purchased Alouette 3 number 195 since it's you over there it's used for instructional purposes but that was the first aircraft of the eight Alouettes that came into service back then. So Mick you brought me into the Apprentice School here now and this is definitely an aircraft I've seen before. Uh, it's probably the first heli, the historical heli I've seen in our tour now. Can you talk me through it? Yeah, sure. So this is Alouette uh, 3, number 195. It's a very historical aircraft and um, it's in the apprentice school here because I'm using it for instructional purpose, but it's nice. still part of the Air Corps history and okay. Air Corps story. The reason he was purchased in 1963 was in the previous decade, there'd been a lot of tragedies on the water at sea and mm -hmm. around the, the mountains and that. So the government purchased these aircraft for the Air Corps to operate them on search and rescue missions and air ambulance. So that's almost six decades ago. And over, that, over those years, they've saved thousands upon thousands of lives and they contributed in no small way to, to, the, to the Irish people and to the, to, the, to the community. And just even standing here beside it, like some of our listeners see some of our videos on social media of the, A3, uh, the 139s and the 135s, the more modern helicopters. But standing beside this, this looks very rudimentary. It's like doors are thin. You have the winch here, it looks, it looks like it was a rough aircraft to be yeah. in and it'd be very difficult to handle, I'd say, in bad weather or even doing a rescue in it. Even the space inside is quite tight. Yeah, well, I've actually flown on this aircraft a few times when it was in service and it was the first aircraft that ever flew in, actually, yeah, core aircraft. So the first day was a bit scary, but I got used to it. I can imagine. But I say it is very rudimentary compared to the Air Corps aircraft that are flying now, the helicopter, uh, the AES-135. But don't let that fool you. These things are very durable and very mm. strong and they contributed in no small way, as I said. They saved lots of lives. Um, they, the, most of the people who, who were in the Air Corps, whether they're technicians, servicemen, or women, or pilots, who flew this aircraft in their, in their day, have a, a, an affinity with it. They love it. It's a very historical and important aircraft. And to look at it now, you wouldn't think that it contributed so much. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's fantastic. No, no, it's excellent. And you mentioned the missions that, are, that it flew. Yeah. Uh, so search and rescue was at 63? They started off, so it's 1963 they were purchased, but the end of 1963 they'd done their first search and rescue and in February 1964 was their first air ambulance. So that's, that was the seed, or that was the, they were pioneers basically. Mm. They were learning as they went along. The RDF had a lot of contribution into that over the years. The just the training for that, would that have been done over at the RAF or how, how would they have set up the training? Here? Initially they went to France, to, 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 there was a conversion course for the first, the, one of the first pilots who flew that, uh, Bernie McMahon, uh, DSM, uh, uh, what the Distinguished Service Medal, he actually became a General Officer Command in the Air Corps later on. And lots of the stories from these operations are recorded in the oral history programme that we're doing for the Military Archives mm -hmm. oral history programme. But uh, so they would have learned on this basically with French tuition at the start and then the RDF contributed. So they would have had to modify things, you know, because these people were flying over the sea hundreds of miles out, hundreds of miles out over the sea, sea like, yeah. uh, uh, to find ships that were in distress or people mm. that were in distress or whatever. 
So they had to modify. Like for a long time, they were using a certain type of hook hoist. They realised they needed to go bigger and better, and they, they would have modified it through experience and from learning from other people. I'm just when even my, my own very basic knowledge, going from a fixed wing jet, so you're going straight line, to an air to a helicopter, it's completely physics. Everything is completely yeah. different. I'd say it must have been a huge change for them or a huge learning curve. Well, the, the, all the pilots learned to fly a fixed-wing aircraft, and then they can go rotary or fixed-wing. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there was times where they didn't have a choice, but some, most of the time they did. You can imagine straight away that an, a jet or a fixed-wing aircraft cannot hover yeah. over a, a cliff mm-hmm. face and hoist a guy down mm. onto the cliff. So this is a completely different form of flying, particularly for the, for the earlier missions. They're, they're, they were pioneers, really. They were pioneers, and it took an awful lot of discipline, bravery and courage to do this job over the years. And for that reason, it was acknowledged by a significant amount of awards to the crews that flew these helicopters and in that unit. And that's where I want to bring you next now to show you some of those uh, awards and talk about that for a few seconds. Perfect, we'll have a look. So Mick, we are walking into a quite modern building here now with number three written in the outside of it. Can you tell me where we are? Okay, so this is the foyer to the number three operations uh, building. So what strikes me here the minute I came in was these three huge plaques above us here. Uh, can you explain to me what, what this is about or what's this marking? Okay, so this is a significant spot in the, in the camp on the base itself. So the three panels there you see on the left, unit senior NCOs going back in time to the early 60s uh, when the helicopter squadron was established. And the one in the centre gives you the helicopter officers of the fleet and it's also the SAR awards to the right and to the right of that again. So the SAR awards for search and rescue uh, is very important narrative because the, the personnel in this unit have, award, have been awarded significant uh, acknowledgement for their bravery and courage. A number of awards from maritime institutes and other, other places, but there's 22 distinguished service medals have been awarded to the crews of this unit, which means that this is the most decorated unit in the whole Defence Force. That's incredible. Okay, and four of those DSMs were awarded posthumously to four members who died while earning those medals. Speaking about bravery, there's obviously huge danger involved in some of these missions. There is, there's extreme danger, and the people that are doing this job are taking their lives in their hands to serve the community and to save lives. I mean, the motto of this unit is go this bio so that others may live. You can see here, uh, second one down on the side of what's come, oh, 5th of August, 1972, Alouette Captain T. Crow, Corporal T. Kelly and Corporal J. Ring. DSM second class. Mm-hmm. They flew in a storm to Powers Court, examined this scenario. There was two young lads, two brothers, up, had climbed the Powers Court waterfall mm-hmm. and were trapped on that, way up, a couple, yeah, of, yeah. Whatever, a couple of hundred feet up. They flew over and tried to winch down, but they realised it was too dangerous. So they had to let most of the fuel out of the helicopter. The bushes and the trees and the crags and all that were coming in the door of the helicopter as this guy is being lowered down. So that's trying to rescue those face. two boys, yeah. They managed to save one of the boys. Okay. The other fella fell and was killed. And that's a very um, emotional event because the, the parents, you can imagine how they yeah, felt about imagine, that, you know. Yeah. But they saved that young lad's life. And for that, for that mission, risk, just imagine how they could have been lost on that mission mm. themselves. And they were awarded a Distinguished Service Medal for that. And then we have the four posthumous medals, which are in reference to the search and rescue mission which took place, as you can see the plaque here, 4th of July 1919, in the Dauphin, Captain D- David Flaherty, Captain Mick Baker, Sergeant Paddy Mooney and Corporal Niall Bourne. The DSMs with distinction, as you see there, 1999, they were in Waterford, mm-hmm. and it was the first night operations for the search and rescue uh, facility using the Dauphin. 
they flew off to help in a search and a rescue of a boat that was on sea off the coast. The local coast guard had been sent out and the helicopter flew over, found them and helped guide them into the coast. And when they tried to return to base, um, they had difficulty because everything was, was fogged in. So mm -hmm. they tried to land on the airport where they were based. They couldn't land because they couldn't see the buildings. Mm -hmm. The people on the radio could hear them, but couldn't see them. Right. So they could, they could have landed on the building, on a power line, on a yeah. car. They tried to land in a car park of a pub earlier, later on. Same, same situation, they couldn't come down. So they went off the coast and tried to approach a number of times. Okay. And on the last attempt, they hit a sand dune on, uh, on the strand there. And uh, the aircraft crashed and exploded and the four of them were killed. But they saved people's lives, not for the first time, mm -hmm. or helped to save people's lives. And they died in, in doing their job. In the service. So that others may live. Mm -hmm. So the motto here of the unit. Yeah. So four posthumously awarded Distinguished Service Medals. And also this unit has another guy, Hamid O'Shea, he was awarded two DSMs for, for his role in this unit. So you say we're, like, where we're standing, this acknowledges all the, the operations of the heli, but we're really standing on the foundations of the modern heli is what we know today. Yeah. So you've your 139s and your, and your, and your 135s. Okay, yeah, so, so the op, the, this, this unit is very interoperable. Mm -hmm. So you can see some of the posters here, they do respect the working with the defense, with the army and the special forces here, air mobility, you've got the air and medical services. So today we have a helicopter, or this unit has a helicopter in the, uh, on the EAS uh, yeah. role down in Athlone. So mm -hmm. they're doing emergency air ambulance service all around the country. And that's what the National Ambulance Service yeah. is. Yeah, and they've saved thousands of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent a week with them a few years ago myself for the Oral History Programme, and I was, mm -hmm. I was amazed what they do. Mm -hmm. Saved hundreds of people's lives, and then you have the pilots from this unit will fly the Garda Air Support unit helicopter, okay. the Gazoo. So they have a military pilot from, the, from this unit uh, flying the helicopter and then the guards will be in the back. Uh, so the, the, heli, the helis, they have a huge uh, service to the state, to the people they have, the state, yeah. between the medical ambulance, the Gardaí, and then, and then our own, our, with their own uh, air, air mobility. Yeah, and I've been with them, the only year, yes, mm -hmm. well, they land on a football field on a, on a mower away, anywhere yeah. they can land and take somebody who's critically injured to a hospital in a fraction of the time that it'll take an ambulance to do that. Mm -hmm. And on board, they have an advanced paramedic and you have their own medic crewman from the air corps here from the unit on the go so make that is absolutely fascinating so where are we off to next we're gonna head over to number one operations wing the home of the current fixed wing operations so make we're moving along quite nicely now on our tour and we're really coming into the modern area of, uh, of the irish air corps and that signifies really the hangar that i've walked into is a massive modern hangar with a lot of the aircraft that i recognize now as the modern fleet we have so we walked by the Learjet as we came in. So you want to talk us through uh, the hangar here and the aircraft we have here. Okay, so as you said, this is a modern aircraft hangar. It dates from around 200th century, 2001, and it houses our bigger fleet of fixed wing aircraft. You mentioned the, 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 uh, the Learjet. So that's, the Learjet is used for a ministerial air transport service. They've evolved over time onto these modern jets now. So mm -hmm. you had the, the, the G4, the G3 previously, and now we're operating the Learjet. And that's out in the taxi bin now, preparing for the mission. So I'm standing under the wing of this big blue aircraft, so can you tell me what it is and what it does? Okay, so this is uh, the Casa Maritime Patrol aircraft. Um, these evolved out of Ireland joining uh, the European Union back in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And they carry out uh, maritime patrol over Irish territorial waters, mm -hmm. uh, patrolling our fisheries and lots of other operations in that context. And I know, I know from my own role in the press office, I remember this being sent over to Lebanon after the Beirut explosion to drop PP. So it obviously has a huge utility in bringing cargo as well. There is, and as you can see, there's a, there's a ramp underneath the back of the aircraft that can drop off fodder, PPE, 
people parachuting all sorts of interoperability that way for, for loading stuff on and up but also does emergency air ambulance missions both in Ireland and abroad here. So we'd say where the heli is down in Adelone are kind of your pre-hospital care this is kind of hospital to hospital either in Ireland or internationally as well. So That's right so the patients would be brought to Baldonnell and they'd be flown here to somewhere in the UK or maybe in Europe and vice versa if they have to bring somebody home they'll go to the nearest airport to the hospital say and they'll repatriate. So actually looking in there now they strip the seats away and put in specialist equipment for that I'm assuming. They can yeah they can rip everything out for parachute for passengers uh, there is some passenger seats in there for people to, to travel on it now but they can in a quick turn around the whole interior for the mission. I see the other side of the hangar here is one of the most modern aircraft that we've, we've obtained in the last while. Okay so this is one of our four PC-12s and they mm -hmm. arrived during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, during that time they were used for multi-role uh, operations. If you can imagine during the pandemic most of Europe or actually all of Europe all the aircraft are grounded Mm -hmm. So the Air Corps used this aircraft to, to bring the COVID test kits to Germany. Mm -hmm. They also transported crews. All the interoperability of the Air Corps had to be uh, kept going. And this is the aircraft that done that, the four of them. The real workhorse during COVID. Uh, I remember myself covering social media through the press office. Uh, there was doing patient transfers, sample transfers to Germany. So it really was a utility uh, through, the, through the COVID pandemic. It was indeed. And there's four of them. And the, and the core role of this aircraft is ISTAR operations. And for everyone listening at home, ISTAR is Intelligent Surveillance, Target Acquisition and Reconnaissance, just for the, for the listener at home. But obviously all, the PC-12 itself has a huge amount of roles, like all the aircraft here in the Irish Air Corps, whether it's from the Learjet to the CASA to the PC-12 here are any of the helis. But the fixed wing here really offers a kind of an international dimension, I think, okay. to, 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 the, to the Irish Air Corps and to the Defence Forces. Yeah, so like all Air Corps aircraft in the current fleet, all these aircraft have a multi-role capacity, which is a service that is provided to the Irish state and to the community. So Mick, as I look across the runway there, I see the PC-9s. We haven't been over to them yet. Do you want to take a stroll over? No, we haven't, and that's the ramp, actually. Uh, that's what we call it on the base here. And we're going to head off to the flying training school now so we can have a look at those. Okay, let's head across the ramp. <laughs> Mick, as we're coming across the ramp, we came by the PC-9, which is your training aircraft. But then that brought us in here into the training school, if I'm right. Can you talk to me about the significance of this building here and, and the school itself? Okay, so we're in the flying training school. The building itself, the building we're standing in, dates from the 1940s, but the school goes back to the early 1920s, mm -hmm. when, the, when the Irish Air Service and the Irish Air Corps were established. So every pilot that gets his wings, or whole wings, mm -hmm. in the Irish Air Corps has to come through this facility mm -hmm. to learn how to fly the theory and the flying practice and all that kind of stuff. So on the, on the 23rd of March this year, when we celebrate our centenary, mm -hmm there will be the, the, the most recent nine of those pilots will get their wings. That will be 462 pilots have earned their military pilots' wings through the Air Corps. In the 1940s, mm -hmm. there was a period where we had sergeant pilots, yeah. and they earned flying wings, uh, military pilots' wings. But if you can think about it, over the last 100 years, all of those people, 462, as I said, mm -hmm. people earned those flying wings. Now, lots and lots of people mm -hmm. came here. Yeah. But didn't get that flying wings, yeah, you know, because yeah. it's, it's not an easy thing mm -hmm. Can't uh, to, uh, to achieve. And even I can hear in the background there, we have a bit of movement. So this is still an active, fully active training school here. Yeah, so the students within these buildings at the moment, uh, learning to fly, are uh, just instructors teaching them. So that's, it's an operational facility. Fascinating, so it's going for, going for that long. Yeah. And, and, then, and as you can see, it's looking out onto the ramp. Mm -hmm. And when the, when the pilots are going practicing, the other pilots are in here, or the cadets, looking out there going, I have to do that or I want to do that, you know? Yeah. 
So that's what they're It's very quiet right now. Mm-hmm. You heard the radio going, it was rare traffic a minute ago. But imagine when the aircraft are coming and going, taxiing, pulling up there. And you're the just young sitting lads. here as a student looking out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, aspiring, what you want to aspire to be. But imagine being anywhere between late teens and mid 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mightn't even have a driver's license, but you're going to fly a military spec aircraft <laughs> and they're going to learn how to do all that here. <laughs> and they're going to have all the anxieties of Christmas morning that I get what I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're going to go out there. And they're going to fly and they're going to come back and they're going to be a pilot. That's a nice way to put it and that's a nice way to end it. Mick, thanks you so much for your tour here. It's been an excellent day out. You're welcome, sir. Thank you very much to you and your crew for coming out to the air car today and for exploring our history. No, it was a pleasure. So we wish you all the best as well with your celebrations on the 23rd of March. Also, as part of our upcoming celebrations, we'll be releasing a bumper edition of Uncustentor magazine and a special oral history podcast series. Today's episode was produced by Corporal Keith Harrison of the Defence Force Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Force podcast will be back soon with further episodes. Until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.